Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Debt default, China's Evergrande formally downgraded after missing key repayments. Boost to boost, more evidence that a third jab can help limit COVID effects. And party probes. UK government now facing three Christmas event investigations. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. And a warm welcome to another fast and furious first move. An Evergrande debt default giving investors a queasy feeling. In the UK, a Christmas party scandal has the government reeling. Don't forget the Finnish PM caught clubbing instead of quarantining. She's young. Better.com CEO Scrooge says don't call him unfeeling. No chance. At least the US Congress has found a way to raise the debt ceiling. For global stocks, another day of wheeling and dealing. US futures and European markets are softer, but we're holding on to the week's gains. The S&P 500 still on the brink of all-time highs, but as you can see, we're losing a bit of ground. The catalyst, Omicron optimism, thank data from Pfizer and a small South African study that allayed some of the worst fears, but fresh holiday restrictions in Delta-scarred Europe could further dent growth there. Worrying comments, too, from the UK Health Secretary saying Omicron could end up infecting some one million citizens by the end of the month. The critical question, of course, is how much pressure does this ultimately place on health systems there and around the world. And for that, we just have to wait. China and Hong Kong, meanwhile, gaining despite news after the close from ratings agency Fish. Fitch, property giant Evergrande, officially now in default on its overseas debt after missing two key payments. No mystery now, therefore, why China injected some $200 billion worth of liquidity into the financial system earlier this week. And I think the expectation, at least from an investor perspective, is that authorities will continue to do so to maintain stability as required. Let's get more on all of this in our drivers. Selena Wang joins me now. Selena, great to have you with us. I think Fitch just confirming what investors and everybody else knew at this stage, which was Evergrande was incapable of paying its debts. It's now formally in default. What now and what is the company saying? Yeah, exactly. Even though this makes it official, the markets have been waiting for this for a long time. For months now, Evergrande has been scrambling to make deadline after deadline, struggling to pay back its lenders and raise that cash with its $300 billion in liabilities. Investors realized that it was only a matter of time before it ran out of cash and was unable to pay its bills. Now, it is unclear, Julia, what exactly the next order of operations are, but the company has said that it plans to actively engage with offshore creditors on a restructuring plan. The company also said earlier this week that it would set up a risk management committee. On top of that, you also have the government getting involved on managing the company. The local government in Guangdong province, where Evergrande is based, has said that it would send a working group to help the company maintain normal operations. So the big question now is, what does Evergrande end up looking like after this restructuring, which is going to be incredibly complex and intricate? 
as we've discussed and, and we've discussed in the past as well, the and the top central banker, I believe, in China said it overnight too, there's not going to be this spillover effect and they will cushion at the core of this, which is home buyers. I mean, this is a property giant, but at the base of this is, is people who've bought their homes and obviously want those homes to be built and still around. Um, but it does represent a symbol, I think, of the broader challenges of what is an incredibly bloated and indebted property sector in China. And I think that's one of the big questions going forward, too. Exactly. Evergrande has become the poster child, as you say, of this reckless borrowing in the property sector, which has supercharged China's economy causing property sector to be about 30% of China's GDP. But now the party sees that excessive borrowing and expansion as a threat to financial stability. The big fear a few months ago was that given how intertwined and complex and big Evergrande is that a failure of this company could spell economic disaster for the economy. Even though you have other property companies in China struggling to pay off its debts, it is clear that this is not China's Lehman moment. But Julie, we've talked about this before, and the bigger implication of all of this is what it really says about China's economic model moving forward. And economists say that this high growth model in China, where you have the property sector pumping credit into the economy, fueling growth, those days are over. So that means we may be entering into this era of slower, but what China would say is more balanced growth. Yes. Selena Wang, thank you so much for that. Let's move on. Booster backup. Two new studies underline the benefit of a third vaccine dose in the fight against COVID. Israeli research suggests people who've had a Pfizer vaccine booster are 90% less likely to die than those with only two doses. The data also suggests that a booster reduces the risk of infection tenfold. Dr. Sanjay Gupta joins us now. Sanjay, great to have you with us once again. So good news overall. If you've had a vaccine, important news if you're undecided about getting a booster. Vitally important if you remain unvaccinated. Yeah, I think that that's exactly right, uh, Julia. When you look at these trends uh, in this Israeli data, uh, you, you'll look at what, what was going on overall with cases in, in Israel and, and deaths in Israel. And then you see at sort of the end of August is when they uh, started giving boosters pretty widely. And it is important to point out, as you did, that the numbers were still relatively small. So when you look at the numbers there, even though you see a significant uptick there, still small numbers that went up somewhat, got the boosters, and then they came down. So from, from a, a relative risk standpoint, it did decrease significantly the likelihood of developing a case and also develop, really reduced the risk of, of dying. But the two shots themselves were very effective. The boosters made it even more effective and that you saw the biggest benefit in vulnerable populations, people who are already at risk of developing severe illness. Actually, that chart's so important, uh, Sanjay, because the skeptics that I have, and I still have plenty of people around me say, but you can still catch COVID. Even when you've had a, a vaccination or a booster, you can still catch COVID. But that chart showed the number of cases after you'd seen people once again receiving the third shot or the booster shot, that the number of cases per capita coming significantly lower. I think we have to emphasize this. You can still catch COVID even if you've had a vaccination, but it does bring the likelihood down. Yeah, I, that, that's right. I mean, Julia, nothing's perfect. So right. I think that's exactly right. You can reduce the uh, likelihood of getting infected in the first place. I think the confusion for a lot of people, Julia, has been some studies that showed at some point that if you are vaccinated and you do become infected, then for a period of time, you uh, can still transmit. You still develop a viral load high enough to transmit. That is true. 
but the likelihood of you becoming infected in the first place lower, and the window of time that you might transmit much shorter, narrower as well. So important. Uh, final question. The Director General of the World Health Organization said something yesterday which caught my attention. He said that the highly mutated version of the variant Omicron that we've spent so much time talking about in recent days might change the course of the pandemic. He said the exact impact is still difficult to know. We know it's early days. But can you give us any sense of what he meant might change the course of the pandemic? Well, I think he's, he's really talking about the fact that it may really prolong uh, you know, the period of time before we get control of the pandemic. Okay. Because when you look at these mutations and the likelihood of transmission based on those mutations, it's of concern. I mean, one thing, Julia, keep in mind, there's been thousands of variants since this pandemic began. Most of them you've never heard about because they never rose to the, the level of being variants of, uh, of interest. But for this one, the reason it's a variant of concern is because some of the mutations that it has are mutations that are associated with increased transmissibility. Now, one thing that is also starting to emerge, although we don't know for sure, we'll need larger numbers, is that the people who have contracted Omicron do appear, uh, as compared to previous variants, they do appear to have more mild illness as well. Again, sometimes there's a lag period, right? We're still in the first couple of weeks of this, if people with severe illness, that typically doesn't manifest till a couple of weeks later. So we will know more within the next several days, but it is possible that this is a variant that is A, more transmissible, but also causing less severe disease. I think we've gone full circle. The, the ultimate answer to all of these questions is, if you remain unvaccinated, go get a vaccine. And if you haven't been boosted yet and are eligible, please go do it. The perfect message to leave it on, absolutely. Yeah. Sanjay, great to have you with us, as always. Dr. Sanjay Gupta there. Thank you. Okay, let's move on. UK party politics taking on a whole new meaning. The cabinet secretary now investigating three alleged parties held by government staff during November and December of last year. It comes just as England prepares for a fresh round of coronavirus restrictions. Scott McLean joins us now from London on this. Scott, and then there were three alleged incidents. Can you just explain to us what the rules were back then so that we can understand for those not in the UK what the government has allegedly done wrong here and then we can talk about the investigations. Sure, yeah. So the whole reason that this is controversial at all is because at the time, on the date of this party, alleged party in question, December 18th of last year, more than 500 people died in the UK and in London specifically, indoor social gatherings were banned altogether. And the very next day, the prime minister announced that those same rules would apply to the entire country, effectively canceling Christmas for the year. And the reason that we know about this in the first place is because of this leaked video involving um, the prime minister's former press secretary, who appeared to make light of all of this. Johnson, though, continues to insist that there was no party and that no rules were broken, but he's calling, or he has called, or announced an, in, an investigation. Again, this is the prime minister announcing an investigation into whether or not a party was held at his own residence. He apparently was not invited to the one in December, but he was uh, at the one, at least uh, allegedly, in late November, where he gave an impromptu speech. That one is also being investigated. Uh, as for a London police investigation, they say that they will not look into this, citing uh, a real lack of evidence. But they do say that if the political investigation here yields more substantial proof, they may take another look. Yeah, I mean, this is all coming at a very awkward time. As I mentioned in the introduction, Plan B 
rules being announced yesterday, some tightening of restrictions. Funnily enough, they resonate with what we carry on living with on a daily basis in New York, just out of interest. But plan B, tighter restrictions, questions, ethical questions over expenses for the refurbishment of of number 10 Downing Street. Um, Scott, I've seen various calls for a resignation from the prime minister. It comes at a very awkward time for him. It undoubtedly hurts his ability to sell this so-called Plan B, which involves indoor mask mandates and immunity passports for larger gatherings. And you only have to look at Boris Johnson's signature messy hair to know that he sort of branded himself as this everyman, which is why this accusation of being potentially above the rules that are applying to the rest of the country may well hurt him more than previous blunders. In fact, a new poll, Julia, shows that a majority of respondents said that the prime minister should resign over this, including a third of people who voted conservative in the last election. You mentioned some other scandals. One announcement today from the Electoral Commission that there's a fine against the Conservative Party for uh, undisclosed donations involving the refurbishment of an impar- uh, of Johnson's apartment here on Downing Street, previous lobbying um, scandal as well. Um, and so politically, things probably couldn't be much worse for the prime minister. Personally, though, they couldn't be better. Just this morning, according to the British Press Association, uh, Johnson's wife, uh, Carrie, gave gave birth to a a healthy baby girl. That is uh, the prime minister's seventh child, Julia. Wow. Keeps him busy. But congratulations to the prime minister and to his wife, Carrie, as well. Yes, a new baby girl, a healthy baby girl this morning. Very grateful and glad for that. But he's a busy man in other ways. Scott McLean. Thank you for that report. Okay, meanwhile, the Prime Minister of Finland has apologised for going to a nightclub following an exposure to a minister who tested positive for COVID-19. Sana Marin admitted she also left her official phone at home and relied on aides reaching her on her personal mobile. In her apology, she said she did wrong and should have considered the situation more carefully. Yes, not good enough, but I think the decision and the uh, response there is an apology, which is important. Okay, a diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Winter Olympics is growing and now includes Canada, the US, UK and Australia. France says, though, it won't join the boycott, but says it shares other countries' concerns that China is abusing its citizens' rights. For its part, Beijing is condemning the boycotts and threatening reprisals, as CNN's Christy Lou Stout reports. As more nations join America's diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Olympic Games, Beijing is saying that they too will, quote, pay the price. On Wednesday, the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson announced a diplomatic boycott of the Winter Olympics that begin in February in Beijing. The U.K. joins Canada, Australia and the U.S. in a diplomatic boycott of the Games. Now, this is not a full boycott, meaning that athletes will still be allowed to compete. And we have also learned that France will not join the diplomatic boycott. On Monday, the U.S. announced its diplomatic boycott, saying it was a statement against human rights abuses in China, including the charge that China is committing genocide of predominantly Muslim Uyghurs in the Xinjiang region, an allegation that Beijing denies. China said that the U.S. will pay the price for its diplomatic boycott and warned of, quote, resolute countermeasures. Now, today, we heard from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs spokesman. He said that the U.K., Australia and Canada will also pay the price. May. The United States, Australia, United Kingdom and Canada used the Olympics for political manipulation. They cannot win the hearts of the people and are isolating themselves. They must also pay the price for their mistaken acts. China has yet to articulate what the price would be. 
Christy Lustout, CNN, Hong Kong. Let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories we're making headlines around the world. U.S. President Joe Biden hosting a two-day virtual summit for democracy from the White House. Government and civil society leaders from more than 100 countries will take part. President Biden told them efforts to fight corruption and authoritarianism and promote human rights are critical. This is the defining challenge of our time. Democracy, government of the people, by the people, for the people can at times be fragile, but it also is inherently resilient. It's capable of self-correction and it's capable of self-improvement. And as a global community for democracy, we have to stand up for the values that unite us. We have to stand for justice and the rule of law, for free speech, free assembly, a free press, freedom of religion, and for all the inherent human rights of every individual. He's got a busy day coming up. He's also expected to speak with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky two days after Biden warned Russian President Vladimir Putin against invading Ukraine. Despite that warning, Ukrainian defense officials say there are now more than 120,000 Russian troops near the Ukrainian border. So to come here on First Move, when supercar worlds collide, how can Lamborghini please petrol heads and EV lovers? Well, we've got the CEO coming up and he'll explain. And digital disruptors, Brazilian fintech Nubank going public at a $41 billion valuation that makes it Latin America's biggest listed bank. That's coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks set for a softer open this Thursday. The S&P 500 coming tantalizingly close to all-time highs in the previous session on Wednesday as new scientific data helped ease Omicron fears. Companies that still have a lot riding on reopenings like Norwegian Cruise Lines, United Airlines and AMC Cinemas all rallied 4% or more. Airline stocks, too, gaining back virtually all they lost since the beginning of the Omicron omnipresence. Tech, meanwhile, triumphed too, with Apple hitting all-time highs. It's just points away now from achieving a mind-boggling market cap of $3 trillion. So if Apple were a country, it would be the world's fifth largest economy right behind Germany. Reminds me of the conversation we had with Ian Bremmer yesterday. And speaking of tech giants, Amazon fined almost $1.3 billion by Italy's antitrust regulators. It's one of the biggest penalties imposed on an American company in Europe. Anna Stewart joins us now with all the details. Anna, great to have you with us. What exactly are they being accused of and fined for? Yeah, Julia, because it's hard to keep track, frankly, of all the different investigations into all the big tech firms in Europe. Now, this one, as you say, relates just to Italy. It's Italy's regulator that are imposing this fine. And its investigation has been looking at whether Amazon uses its dominant position within the country to unfairly pressure third-party sellers into using its own logistics services, which is called Fulfillment by Amazon FBA. For instance, by linking the use of that with access to premium services like Prime, which of course gets greater visibility and often boosts sales uh, for its sellers. Now, there is some overlap between this investigation and one by the EU. And I think what's going to be really concerning for Amazon is the cooperation there's been between the two, which, of course, suggests that the EU could follow in these footsteps, but also the hefty fine, nearly $1.3 billion. And this is just for one marketplace. So you've got to look at that and wonder 
how big a fine could the EU potentially impose in the future. Um, Italy's regulator also saying they're going to impose corrective steps that will be uh, subject to a review by a monitoring committee. But Amazon strongly disagree with all of this. They are going to appeal. Julia? Revenues for Amazon in 2020, $386 billion. Net income, $3.2 billion in the third quarter of this year. Hmm. These fines are sizable on a relative basis. They are peanuts on an overall basis. But you raise a great point, I think, which is one, the coordination between the EU and Italy on this point. And it reminds me to a remarkable extent of an investigation that the EU opened back in what late 2020 on a similar thing where giving people rewards or benefits and for using Amazon's pure logistics um, is perhaps anti-competitive. Um, just the thin end of the wedge, methinks. I think so. I think it was very interesting that Italy went out on its own on this one, but with um, the blessing of the EU. And actually, Amazon uh, tried to stop these parallel investigations from happening. They took the decision to court and they lost last month, which is why we're seeing this. Now, the EU actually uh, has two big investigations into Amazon right now. One is on personal data, whether um, uh, it's access of data from independent third-party sellers using its platform are then used to unfairly advantage its own retail. And then the other one is looking at whether preferential treatment is given to its own retail, but also to those companies, these third-party companies, that then use their logistics firms, their delivery options, and so forth. So a lot of overlap there, and we're going to hear a lot more in the coming months. Julia? We certainly are. Anna Stewart, thank you for getting your head around that. I love those stories where I just go, tell me what happened. I'll let you do all the logistics. <laughs> Anytime. I know. <laughs> Thank you. The head of Instagram has been answering U.S. lawmakers' questions about the app's impact on children's mental health. Adam Masiri insisted the company was trying to address some of their concerns, but senators argued it hasn't done nearly enough. CNN's Donia Sullivan reports. Self-policing depends on trust. The trust is gone. The head of Instagram facing a disturbing picture of his platform and the harm it causes, especially among kids. Do you view the kids as a feeder way for people to get into your product? Have you, not, have you not done things to get more teenagers interested in your product? Are you not worried about losing them to other platforms? You better tell the truth. You're under oath. It is the latest round of tough questions from lawmakers for Meta, formerly Facebook, which owns Instagram. Shouldn't children and parents have the right to report dangerous material and abuse and get a response? Senator... Yes, I believe we try and respond to all reports. And if we ever fail to do so, that is a mistake that we should correct. Instagram embroiled in controversy since whistleblower Francis Haugen leaked internal documents from the company about the harms of the social media platform on young people, particularly teenage girls. Facebook's internal research is aware that there are a variety of problems facing children on Instagram that are, they know that severe harm is happening to children. Masseri today pushing back. I firmly believe that Instagram and that the internet more broadly can be a positive force in young people's lives. I also know that sometimes young people can come to Instagram dealing with difficult things in their lives. I believe that Instagram can help in those critical moments. The Instagram boss being asked about research released this week that shows teenagers are easily able to find accounts advertising the sale of drugs like Xanax and Adderall, its algorithms even promoting these accounts to some users. Accounts selling drugs or any other regulated goods are not allowed on the platform. Apparently they are. Senator, respectfully, I don't think you can take one or two examples and indicate that that is indicative of what happens on the platform more broadly. 
Missouri pledging the company will do more to protect young users, but it's too little too late for people like Ian Russell, who lost his daughter Molly to suicide in 2017. There was no sign of any mental ill health in Molly before her death, and we couldn't work out what could have possibly triggered it. Russell says he looked at his daughter's social media and was disturbed by what he saw on platforms, including Instagram. Having had a glimpse of what Molly was exposed to, I think I now understand why she was pushed to do what she did. Adding to the pressures on the social media giant recently, a bipartisan group of state attorneys general launched an investigation into the potential harms of Instagram for children and teens, Meta claiming the allegations are false. Tony O'Sullivan, CNN, New York. And the market open is next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move and ringing the opening bell today at the New York Stock Exchange executives from the Brazilian fintech Nubank celebrating its NYSE listing. We'll be speaking to the founder, David Velez, in just a few moments' time. But as you could see there, big smiles all round. But first, a bit of a soggy start to the Wall Street trading day. That said, the Nasdaq still up more than 3% this week so far. So a bit of consolidation, not unexpected. A better tone due to variant optimism, but key central bank challenges are just over the horizon. The U.S. Federal Reserve set to discuss a faster pullback of stimulus next week. The Bank of England weighing an interest rate hike next week too, although we're now expecting a Q1 liftoff. Brazil's central bank still attempting to tame its worsening inflation outlook. Policymakers raising the benchmark interest rate by a formidable one and a half percentage points yesterday. That's actually the seventh interest rate hike this year. And central bankers poised to hike yet again, even as Brazil's economy falls into recession. In the 1980s, every teenager either wanted one or knew someone that did. Just listen to that engine. Immortalised in movies like The Cannonball Run, for 50 years the Lamborghini Countach has represented a powerful, iconic brand. And in a transformative year, the supercar returned as a limited edition hybrid and every single car built has been sold. And that contributed to a record-breaking 2021. In the first quarter of this year, Lamborghini sales rising 25% in the United States year-on-year, 17% in EMEA and up 28% in the Asia-Pacific region. And it's got big plans for the coming decade too, striking a balance between performance and reducing emissions. Stefan Winkelmann is president and CEO of Lamborghini, and he joins us now. So fantastic to have you on the show. I know the record-breaking year that you're having is driven by a number of things, but including the excitement over your new SUV offering as well. Just talk us through what you've seen so far this year. We have uh, had uh, every month more sales than car we could deliver. So if you order uh, one car today of Lamborghini, you will get it in December 2022. So we have a waiting time of one year, which is a, a very healthy one. It's a good order bank. We've seen a tremendous growth all over uh, the place and all our uh, cars are performing on a very high level. And we are very happy about that. And we are looking forward to a 2022, um, which could be on the same uh, level if uh, the demand is going on. And at time being, it seems so. Yeah, so one year wait, you have to have patience too. I mean, you and your customers represent some of the wealthiest people in the world and they are global citizens as well. Tell me where the demand is coming from and what proportion of these are repeat buyers versus new? 
But you know, with the Urus uh, uh, coming into the market, we have a lot of new buyers. The average age uh, uh, went down. We have more female buyers. And uh, also due to the Urus, we have more people also than opting for one of our super sports cars. And the growth is coming a bit uh, from all over the place. The biggest market by far is the, is the US. Market number two is China. Then there's Germany. Then we have uh, uh, the United Kingdom, the Middle East, Germany, Korea, Japan, Russia. These are more or less the, the top markets we're having. And they're equally spread uh, into the major regions of this world. That is fascinating. What is the average age, just approximately, of the SUV, the Euros buyer? But yeah, the average age is below 45. Mm. Uh, the youngest customers we have in China with an average age of 37 on the Euros. Then comes the US and uh, a bit older, they are here and the, the people are here in Europe. Yeah, it's fascinating. It sort of ties to my next question about the outlook and the focus on hybrid vehicles and sustainability. You said, look, the whole range will have a hybrid option by 2024, full electric car on the market, perhaps 2027, 2028. How would you define a Lamborghini customer and how would you define a hybrid EV customer? And are they ultimately the same thing as long as you can match performance? Yes. So a Lamborghini a customer of today is mainly male. Pardon, mainly male. We have over 90% male customers. Uh, they're very much into the made in Italy. They have more cars in their garage. And they are a lot about design and performance. They are very much into technology. And if we keep the promise uh, to have more performance, uh, uh, with the uh, hybridization by maintaining a very uh, outstanding design, there will be no uh, reduction in the demand. We're sure about that. We see it, uh, we made tests, we have spoken to a lot of customers. There is also a change uh, um, in terms of generation. So the more the younger generation is coming into uh, the super sports car business and able to buy one of our dream cars, the more the, the fact that the cars have to be sustainable is a condition sine qua non. They don't even ask. They see this a, a, as a prerequisite uh, to sit at the table with us. So it, there is a shift, a shift in generation, but the promise is always the same. Better performance and an outstanding design. Okay, so performance first, design second, and sustainability and an EV hybrid offering prerequisite too? Yes, because we will maintain, uh, the, 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 with the hybridization, we will maintain the sound of the engine. So the, the follow-up <laughs> exactly. of our Ventador, which is our, which is our top market, we will have uh, still an engine. So the sound will stay. When we speak about a full electric car, which is then happening, as you said, between 27 and 28, we have enough time and there is an... Uh, there will also be a new generation of batteries and we are driving a lot of uh, electric vehicles to test. And I think that there is a lot of uh, opportunity to do a lot of differentiations uh, between uh, Lamborghini and other manufacturers. So we see we are in good spirits 
that also at the end of this decade, an electric car will be accepted in a positive way as Lamborghini. Yeah, fascinating. Um, we have to talk about the Countach because I think for anyone who understands anything about the brand, 50 years ago, this was... Um, it was so transformative, I think, for the essence of the brand, whether it was technology or, or whether it was design. And you obviously did the special edition, and I believe it sold out incredibly quickly. And we're talking, what, a base price of, of $2.5 million, and they sold out like this. Um, what's the wait time, hypothetically speaking, if I were um, wanting to get one of those? And, and what do I get for my money, ultimately? Is this an investment piece in your mind? For sure. It's, it's an investment, for sure, but I would not see it as the first uh, idea uh, to buy a car uh, for the investment. is uh, for the joy to ride. You buy into something which is incredible. As you said, design and technology uh, is still part of the DNA of Lamborghini because the design, so the, the silhouette, the front view, uh, the technology with the longitudinal engine in the back, uh, with the, uh, the gearbox in the tunnel, so between the two seats, they kept move forward, the scissors, all this uh, is something which we still have in our super sports cars. And this has not changed. We have, a, let's say, a modern interpretation of the 21st century of this car. We, we are building just 112. And as you said, they're all sold. And uh, I think that everybody who bought one of these cars uh, will have something which is rising in value. But first of all, they have a fantastic product. Yes. I think if I start saving today, I might be able to afford one in 2077. So we'll see what it looks like. <laughs> we'll see what it looks like by then. And my, my director, Bam Bam, told me that he had two seven foot posters of Lamborghinis in his bedroom wall when he was growing up. So maybe I'll borrow one of those in the interim. So great Good to talk right. to you. Yeah. Thank you so much. The You're president welcome. and the CEO of Lamborghini there, Stefan. Great to chat to you. Thank you. OK, up next. Brazil's new bank going public. We speak to the CEO about the journey from startup to banking star. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. The CEO of Better.com says he wants to build back better. The 2021 corporate Scrooge of the Year is apologising for his unvirtuous virtual sacking of hundreds of employees. Paula Monica joins me now. That's me calling him Scrooge, no one else. But I think plenty of people share that opinion. He said he's deeply sorry and he blundered the execution. I think that's the understatement of the year. Yeah, this is obviously putting it extremely mildly, Julia. There were so many mistakes that were made during this Zoom call, uh, so much so that CNN has reported now about three communications executives who are leaving the company as a result of this debacle. CNN Business also spoke to several of the employees who were on the call and were stunned when the news was happening. I mean, it's always difficult to lay people off at any time of the year, but around the holidays and to do it in such a cold and callous manner, it really does beg the question, can better really rebound from this? Because this is a company that was looking to go public through a SPAC deal. That is reportedly now on hold. You have to wonder whether or not there's going to be a customer backlash or people who are looking to do a 
mortgage refinancing or get a new loan, will they still think that Better is a company that they want to do business with? Perhaps not. Yeah. In a world where the consumer is the ultimate activist, you have to be very careful making these kind of these kind of errors. And you know, companies have to tighten up. Companies have to let people go. These are tough decisions that have to be made by a CEO. The handling of these things is so important. Um, does the name Adam Newman ring any bells with anyone? The ousted yeah, rework I- CEO. I don't know. You have big investors involved in this that may turn around and look at this and say, is this the right person to lead us through an IPO to lead the company in the future? This is not his first offense. Yeah, it's there have been other uh, you know issues of him being very callous in emails that have come up. And you mentioned, uh, you know, we work in Adam Newman. And I think, unfortunately, for SoftBank, they are the common denominator in uh, this scenario. It seems yes. like SoftBank, the uh, always investing in or dare I say enabling some of these bad actors you know that may not be fair to SoftBank because it has such a huge portfolio of course but you know you do have to wonder investors have to do their due diligence as well and as cheesy as it may sound it's all about the people when you meet a CEO a corporate leader you as an investor should be able to get a sense whether or not you want to do business with this person and Perhaps there are lots of people that going forward will not want to do business with better. Yeah. If I've learned anything from one or two years now in, uh, in business journalism, it's that culture matters and it begins at the top. Um, so whether you embarrass them or they embarrass you and he's thrown that word around a lot, um, responsibility, culpability begins at the top. Paula Monica, thank you. You're watching First Move. More to come. Welcome back to First Move and a breakthrough for Brazil's banking disruptor, Nubank. The fintech went public just moments ago, valued at some $41.5 billion. That makes it Latin America's most valuable listed bank. Nubank was founded eight years ago with a mission to cut the red tape around banking in Brazil. It now has 48 million customers in Brazil, Mexico and Colombia. Nubank estimates that 5 million of its users have never before had an account or credit card. And joining us now is David Veles. He's the CEO of Nubank. David, fantastic to have you on the show. Huge congratulations. You know, I vividly remember our first conversation where you talked about the challenges of opening a bank account. You are a long way from that today, my friend. How does this moment feel? <laughs> Thank you, Julia. Great having me again here. It's, uh, it feels great. Uh, this is a great moment. We're here with family, with investors, with friends, with customers. And uh, it's, uh, it's the end of one part of the milestone, but also the beginning of a very big journey. So we're very excited. Yeah, you're just beginning. Um, you currently serve over 48 million customers across, um, across the network. Um, and just to be clear with our viewers, I believe that was 5.2 million people in 2018. I'm looking at my old figures. Um, 35 million on a monthly active basis are actually using the platform. Can you sustain this kind of growth? LATAM is a big place, there's lots of people, but can you sustain that kind of growth? Yeah, I think uh, the growth has been coming completely word of mouth, uh, completely viral. We've especially over the past 16 months or so unlocked a number of different segments of the population. I think before the pandemic, still kind of the main market thought that the concept of banking with a bank without branches was actually scary. Now everybody has is really embracing this as the way forward. 
especially because we gave a great user experience, we charge no fees, lower interest rate. So for consumers, it's a no-brainer. This is one of the best opportunities that they can have to bank. And now we're getting all of those consumers to come and try it us. When they start using Nubank, they don't go back. So we think it, it's going to continue growing for a while. Yeah, you and I talked about the the audience and the sheer proportion of people across Latin America that remain unbanked and what? It's just over 200 million people. So do they remain the target audience ultimately in fostering those kind of people and giving them financial products? Or are you prepared to start disrupting some of the, the bigger guys that still dominate the landscape in Latin America, the, the established banks that for a long time have not been interested in these kind of customers? Yeah, so growth has actually come from both. So we, we, we initially get a lot of the banked customers that were in the hands of five of the big banks, right? Generally, Latin American markets have uh, about five banks that own 80 to 90% of all the lending, all the savings, all the credit. Traditionally, there was very little competition, so bank consumers didn't have a lot of options. Alternatives was scarce. They were our first adopters trying to leave away from the big banks and embracing the user experience that we have. And now increasingly, given the low-cost platform that we have, we can really serve everybody, especially those 200 million customers that have no access to banking, where sometimes what you need to give them is a $10 credit line to begin with, or they have $10 that they want to deposit in a fixed income account or buy equities with $10. So you got to be able to serve them with a very low cost structure so you can give them a good service and ultimately be a product that serves 100% of the population, really everybody. Talk to me about pricing credit risk as well, because it's a different prospect when you're talking about those that have a banking history to those that don't. And you're talking about relatively small sums there. But I mentioned earlier on the show the fact that the central bank, the Brazil central bank, and we'll use that country specifically, has taken base rates from 2% earlier this year to, to 9.25%. In a world where you're offering credit in particular, the price of credit just accelerated dramatically. What's that going to mean for your business, David, the testing? of the structure of the business and your pricing of risk? From the business perspective, it actually doesn't change a lot. On the one end, we pay deposits and we can increase the yield that we're paying our uh, deposit holders. But on the other end, we can also increase the yield of the lending right? So of the lending products. So ultimately, we're kind of hedged from both sides. Ultimately, though, our goal is to use a lot of the analytics and machine learning and, and, and efficient structure to try to bring down that cost of risk and that cost of yield. And we're trying to price 20 to 30 percent below the incumbents, so our product becomes increasingly much more attractive. So ultimately, if the interest rates go up, we're going to try to maintain it low. And in times of tough times, people become much more sensitive to paying fees, to not getting the type of interest rate that they want. So ultimately, our value proposition becomes actually much more attractive for, for a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, you're hedged on both sides as long as the people who borrow money pay the money back. Yeah, that's right. And obviously, we're taking a lot of the credit risk. But, you know, we've started in 2014, and the only thing we've seen, unfortunately, in the, the eight years that we've been as a company is Brazil in a recession. Brazil has contracted 8% since we started as a company. And so we always say that our credit models have never seen Brazil growing, unfortunately, which means we've actually been very battle-tested in really tough times through recessions, through pandemic. And we have had a lot of confidence on our credit underwriting abilities, ultimately having lower losses than the incumbent. So we feel very comfortable going forward and navigating these turbulent waters. Yeah, that is such a great point.
Um, coming into this, and I do want to talk about valuations, and as you said, we're at the beginning of this, so we'll talk about it again, but you did decide just to lower the price slightly here, and clearly you've still raised a lot of money. Do you think valuations perhaps in this sector have, have got stretched? There is a lot of competition, there's a lot of opportunity, but there's a lot of competition. Do you think at some point we're looking at a future of consolidation, whether it's on the digital side or again for the established banks? Listen, it's a very, very, very large market. Just in Latin America financial services, we're talking about a $1 trillion market cap market, so it's very large. And it's a market that should increase significantly over the next five, 10 years as you bring another 200, 250 million people into the banking system. So ultimately, if you believe that the advantages that digital players like us will be very significant to compete with incumbent banks, the opportunity is, is, is very significant for a lot of people to bank the people that have been unbanked and ultimately take share for the people that haven't really been able to transform their business. Yeah, the upside potential here is enormous. What are you going to do with the money, David? We're profitable in Brazil, uh, so a lot of this money is really going to grow in Mexico and in Colombia, which are our two key new markets. We're very excited about the traction that we're seeing here, seeing there. In Mexico in September, we were already the largest credit card issuer in the country. So we see a lot of momentum in these new markets, and it's very excited to see that we're being able to replicate the Brazil model in new markets. So we're using the money to grow there, to establish ourselves as one of the leader financial services firms. And we're also earmarking some money for M&A and perhaps some consolidation over the next few years. Yeah, the sky's the limit. Um, David, I know it's a huge moment for you and for your team as well, who've worked incredibly hard. What are you going to do at the end of the day when you get through this, other than catch up on some sleep, I'm sure? We won't sleep at all. We have to go from here, from New York, to oh. Sao Paulo tomorrow. We're ringing the bell in Sao Paulo Stock Exchange as we're doing a dual, dual listing. Yes. So not a lot of sleep over the next few days, but we're very excited about what we're doing. So Yes, lots It'll to celebrate. Good. Great to chat to you. Come back and Absolutely. talk to us soon, please. Safe journey. Thank you, Julia. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. Thank you. The CEO of New Bank there from the New York Stock Exchange. Okay, that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. In the meantime, stay safe as always and connect the world with Max Foster is up next. I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high quality sleep every night. Sleep Next Level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.